engage with other cultures? How does the exchange of people address violent extremism? How can cities become players on the world stage? Sponsored by the USC Center on Public Diplomacy, I'm Madison Jones, and this is the Public Diplocast. This is Episode 1, Be a Good Neighbor. Before we begin the series, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I am a second-year grad student in the Master of Public Diplomacy program at USC, where I am particularly interested in the role of media and terrorism, political communication, and faith diplomacy. I also work as a graduate fellow at the USC Center on Public Diplomacy, or CPD as we call it, and as a non-resident research fellow at the U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy at the U.S. Department of State. I'm also the president of the Association of Public Diplomacy Scholars here at USC. Previously, I worked in public relations in Los Angeles and New York City. So enough about me, on with the show. Public diplomacy is a fascinating field and quite broad. So what is it exactly? Master of Public Diplomacy students here at USC try to explain it to their parents at the dinner table by defining it as basically a cross between communications and international relations. Generally speaking, though, public diplomacy actually aims to engage and influence foreign audiences to advance foreign policy goals. Here's an example. South Korea and North Korea agreeing to share a flag and a team during the Winter Olympics. Huge news. Of course, this is just one definition, and many different scholars, practitioners, and governments define it in their own way. While traditionally public diplomacy has been practiced by governments, public diplomacy is now widening its scope, with non-governmental actors, private organizations, corporations, and even individuals engaging in public diplomacy overseas. Think International Medical Corps, Starbucks, and Angelina Jolie. To unpack the definition, understand the historical practice of public diplomacy, and look to its future, I am honored to welcome the king of PD himself, Dr. Nicholas J. Call. Dr. Call is a professor of public diplomacy and is the founding director of the Master of Public Diplomacy program at USC. His research focuses on public diplomacy and specifically the role of media, culture, and propaganda in international history. He's the author of two volumes on the history of U.S. public diplomacy, The Cold War in the United States Information Agency, American Propaganda and Public Diplomacy from 1945 to 1989, and The Decline and Fall of the United States Information Agency, American Public Diplomacy from 1989 to 2001. Dr. Cole has lectured widely around the world, frequently as a guest of diplomatic academies or foreign ministries and public diplomacy agencies, including those of the UK, Canada, India, Korea, Mexico, South Africa, and Switzerland. Welcome, Dr. Cole. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So I've given a very general definition of public diplomacy, but my first question to you as an historian and leader in PD research is, what is your definition of public diplomacy? Well, my definition of public diplomacy is that it's the the instruments that a an international actor uses to advance their foreign policy goals by engaging with a foreign public. Uh, traditionally, diplomacy has been about an international actor engaging with an, another international actor, um, but public diplomacy specifies that it has to be a a uh, a public uh, sometimes in in practice the kind of 
uh, the public is engaged uh, sort of through uh, two steps and the international actor might go after opinion formers rather than the public directly. But the ultimate goal is to um, be in contact with the public. Now, my definition um, focusing on engagement is a little different from some governments that would emphasize specifically influence. But I feel that public diplomacy at its best is a two-way process. And for it to be effective, it has to be based on listening. And listening uh, is a flow of information from the audience, the target public, to the international actor. Could you maybe give us a specific example of public diplomacy in action? Well, one of the uh, best examples of public diplomacy, a sort of a classic, would be the way in which the United States used jazz musicians during the 1950s to engage publics around the world and show publics something attractive about the United States, which also included within it a little message. The State Department was very careful that when it was sending jazz musicians abroad, it was sending over jazz musicians who worked in a in a um, interracial context, so they would have um, integrated bands. It created an impression that the United States both respected African-American culture and that white people were able to participate in African-American culture too and that jazz was for everyone. And uh, I think that the Jazz Ambassadors is, is you know, it's a legendary program and an example of, of um, through uh, audience responses, an example of what public diplomacy can really do for uh, the reputation of a country. Can you explain, using your research on American history as an example, how propaganda is different than public diplomacy? Well, this is one of the, the big questions, because we know that the term public diplomacy was invented so that um, the United States could say that it did something different from propaganda, that those wicked communists were doing propaganda, but the virtuous United States had something different called public diplomacy, which was full of benevolent meanings. Propaganda listens only to target. Uh, propaganda is not particularly interested in its uh, audience as having something valuable to say. It's not, a, a, it's not in, its, in its nature a dialogue form. It's more of a, um, uh, about getting your audience to comply with what you want. Whereas public diplomacy works best when it's two-way. It works best when it's based on listening. It works best when it is seeking out things that are of mutual interest between the audience and or the, the foreign public and the domestic actor or even the d domestic public. Uh, sometimes it's two publics talking to each other. I think one of the questions that this raises then is that at what stage or how does American public diplomacy or how does American propaganda morph into something different, morph into public diplomacy. And there are a couple of, maybe there's three historic milestones where we see this starting to happen. And it, and it uh, puts some clear blue water between uh, what would be thought of as propaganda and something, some newer form. The first is in 1957 when the director of America's Public Diplomacy Agency, the USIA, um, actually issues a directive to steer clear of propaganda, to avoid certain subjects, to avoid a, a tone that was hectoring and know-it-all and pushing people around and to say, no, we have to be about something different. This was a director called Arthur Larson. He was a very interesting character, actually. Second milestone would be a few years later in 1960 
when uh, his successor as director, George V. Allen, uh, accepts the or um, approves the Voice of America Charter, um, saying that Voice of America had to be balanced in its coverage of news. This was moving Voice of America beyond, uh, in its terms of reference, beyond a, a concept of, uh, of propaganda, of selling the American way, even though that could be part of its content. It had to always be balanced in its news content. So that's the second phase. Third phase, I think, comes in the Johnson administration when they're actually using the term public diplomacy. And Johnson's director of USIA, Leonard Marx, issues a directive saying, okay, public diplomacy is no, or the USIA will no longer conduct covert public diplomacy. Everything has to be attributed. Up to that point, it had been possible for USIA to uh, create leaflets that weren't clearly from the US government. So they, they could be um, attributed either to, it was what we would call grey propaganda, uh, uh, material of an unclear attribution. And pulling the USIA out of that business, I think, was a really important step to saying that American overt diplomatic communication to publics is, is something different. It also really helped that they started calling the people who practiced public diplomacy public diplomats. And so those are three milestones along the way. So you've lectured on public diplomacy and consulted in many different countries. Yes. Do you see any stark differences in the way governments around the world practice PD? I do. I do. I think I'd say that governments around the world have their favorite kinds of public diplomacy. And that sort of tells us something about the nature of that society, that Britain, for example, is uh, very proud of its international broadcasting. And the first thing that a British public diplomacy analyst like myself would recommend is, oh, you need to beef up the BBC World Service. And that's absolutely what I <laughs> have said in uh, um, advice. I think that um, the Japanese place a great emphasis on exchange. They even call the whole process international exchange. And... Um, uh, are always talking in terms of the two-way. Uh, that, that's part of the history of the way public diplomacy was was conceived in in, in uh, Japan uh, more than a hundred years ago. As they were thinking about their relationship to the world, they thought of it as an exchange relationship. I think that the French uh, see everything through the lens of culture where they're talking and have as an underlying uh, goal for their public diplomacy the promotion of the French language and cultivating an admiration or retaining in the world an admiration for uh, French values and culture. Uh, the United States, um, which I guess we're getting to, tends to privilege advocacy. And as far as Congress is concerned, while diplomats may think about two-way relationships and everybody learning from everybody, Congress tends to think of public diplomacy as being about advocating. You know, the, the answer is America, now what's the question? And that's both a strength in American public diplomacy, but it's also you know, one of the weaknesses not to have as an option for American public diplomats. Well, let's just do something to vaguely promote the well-being of this relationship. It has to be, American public diplomacy has to be tied to a goal. Let's get X accomplished. Let's um, accomplish 
a particular, let's get this thought strong in, in this particular uh, neighborhood. Should there always be a goal attached to public diplomacy? Well, it depends. If you were a Congress person, you would say yes, because it's public money being spent on it. I, I, my personal feeling is that a general well-being of relationships is, is a sufficient goal and that there should always be public diplomacy operating in the background to um, maintain sound relationships. Uh, think of it as like your relationship with your neighbor. You don't only talk to your neighbor and ask them how they're doing when you want something. You would be a pretty weird neighbor if you, uh, if you only talked when you wanted your, um, your driveway shoveled of, of snow or your house was on fire and you needed them to come around and sling a bucket of water over something. You know, and what worries me about American public diplomacy is that it's very crisis driven. The rise of globalization is really breaking down the barriers that may have once existed when conducting diplomacy previously. We now have incredible access to internet technologies and transportation. Social media is allowing for peer-to-peer -peer engagement. So my question to you is, how are non-governmental organizations engaging in diplomacy? What are the benefits to that, and do we still even need traditional public diplomacy? Well, I think that the reason that I've been talking about international actors rather than nation states is specifically because Public diplomacy is no longer a monopoly of the nation state. And the internet has made it possible for people to connect in different ways and for many, many more voices to be uh, relevant in and available uh, at, a, at a global level. So um, the, 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 universe of, the universe of global communication has changed uh, fundamentally and... I don't think it's, uh, I think all we have to do as scholars is really recognize that this ch change has taken place. What does it mean for the nation state? It doesn't mean that national level public diplomacy should pack up and go home. What it means is that you have opportunities that come from the existence of vocal non-governmental actors and credible international actors that are non-governmental because you can work with them. And I think that the most effective public diplomacy activities today are not unilateral. They're not one country speaking to another country, but rather a country coordinating many kinds of actors, including the sort of actors you're talking about, like non-governmental organizations, regional organizations, uh, international organizations, bringing them all together around a cause that everybody shares. Because different partners in that group are going to be credible to different key audiences that you're trying to influence. And no government is credible to every audience member uh, under the sun or every potential audience member uh, under, under the sun. You have to shop around. To it. I think that today public diplomacy should be conceived not as what can I tell you to persuade you around this, key, this issue that's important to me, but who can I empower who you respect, who you know, who is credible to you to help you understand better what's going on and how do I understand better what you feel about this and the ways in which I need to change to reach a, um, a, a mutually satisfactory uh, understanding of this particular problem. As we look to the future of public diplomacy, what are the challenges and opportunities you see in the field and what should we be prepared for? You know, I've worked as a historian now, a historian of public diplomacy for th over 30 years. And 
the thing about being a historian is people tell you when you're wrong. When you're talking about the future, people can't tell you wrong at the time. They have to wait to tell you that they're wrong, that you're wrong. Um, and I am realizing now how wrong I was in things I said about the future of public diplomacy 10 years ago. I was very optimistic about the internet. I believed that it would be this mechanism for empowering people. I underestimated the power of bots to uh, emphasize uh, particular negative types of speech. I underestimated the way in which online technology could be used for um, disinformation and the way in which disinformation today is different from disinformation in the, in the Cold War. The key today is that nobody is really promoting a, uh, a coherent agenda through disinformation. Rather, they're just trying to tear down the other person. And in the Cold War, behind everything the Russians said was uh, an idea of an ideology that was an alternative that would uh, pushing forward the Soviet Union as a as a positive um, example, and, and it's not the case uh, today. It's now I, I'm struck by the, the the tremendous negativity of the disinformation agenda. Just your society doesn't work. You're as corrupt as anybody else. Your alliances don't work, and over and over again, this this erosion of any uh, positive view of the world. So even the idea of truth is contested and you're left with, you're left feeling, all I can do is trust the strongest guy in the room. Now, if you work for the strongest guy in the room, it makes sense to have that kind of message being, um, being put out. I didn't anticipate that this would become the way in which international community or a dominant theme in international communication, but it certainly is. How do we move beyond that? How do we come back from that? I think that there's a need for leadership in the field of international relations, and that's going to mean leadership in the field of public diplomacy, that we need to have fresh voices. We need to have voices that remind us of our best selves and what we can be if we are prepared to work together. I don't know who has the credibility to do that, to be honest, those voices were present in the past. Uh, often they came from American presidents. And you, I think back to the way in which Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, all articulated a, a vision of the future that was positive and inclusive and so attractive that even enemies could see themselves as having a stake in the world that was being described. And right now, I don't see that kind of vision of the future being articulated. So that's what I would like. In, in some ways, I'm waiting for Roosevelt or the, for the equivalent, for the, the 21st century Roosevelt to talk about this is what we could do. This is how we could be better. And um, I'm not sure who has the ability to do that today, who has the credibility uh, everybody seems to be torn down before they have a chance to uh, steer the world in that kind of direction. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Cole. We appreciate you sharing your PD insights with us. Oh, you're very welcome. 
Special thanks to the USC Center on Public Diplomacy, specifically Lisa Rao, who made this possible, the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, and Caleb Trask, who provided our theme music, which comes from his EP, Across the Water. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for our inaugural episode of the Public Diplocast. Looking forward to bringing you episode two, so stay tuned.